Thanks. Um, thank you guys so much for being here this morning. For those of you who haven't met me, my name is uh, James Fiscasio. I'm one of the elders here. Um, and during this time, uh, we're just going to do some teaching, uh, listening from God's Word. So for the next 25, 30 minutes or so, we're going to be um, in Acts 3. But before we do that, I invite you to slow down with me and, and pray with me uh, before we get into God's Word. God, we come before you and we just thank you for this time. God, I pray that you would slow, slow us down, Lord, to be here, to be present, Lord. I pray that our hearts would be tuned into you, Lord, that our ears would be tuned in to what you have to say to us, that uh, your Holy Spirit speaks truth and life to us, reminding us that you care for us, Lord, that you are a healer. Lord, that you heal the, the, the physical, the spiritual, the emotional, the mental, all the things that are specifically wrong and broken inside of us, Lord. That you bring refreshing seasons, Lord. So I pray that during this time that we would see that, we would know that, we would believe that, and we would leave this place as people transformed in that faith. And I pray these things in your name. Amen. Before we jump into Acts 3, uh, um, uh, in a couple of weeks, something amazing is going to happen. This thing is rocking on me. But something amazing is going to happen. Thanksgiving is going to happen, right? Um, I love Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving is my Super Bowl. When I think about the best day of the year, Christmas is great, right? Like, Christmas is okay. I lived in uh, Las Vegas and then in Florida, so we didn't get snow, so Christmas was just another day. So Thanksgiving, Thanksgiving is a day where we get to come together as a family and eat and celebrate and be thankful and super sweet. Uh, When I was a kid... I would imagine opening up a restaurant. I, I don't know why I had this bend. I really like to eat. So I wanted to open a restaurant, and I want to fill it with people and fill it with food. I was super excited. So I would write menus when I was six years old. I would write menus for what would be at my restaurant. And reflecting on it as I was preparing for this this morning, it was all carbs, right? It, it was pasta. It was bread. <laughs> there were no vegetables to be found. Um, so years Years would go by, and I would ask my parents if I can cook or bake or, or do something, and they very graciously would let me in the kitchen and turn the knives and pots and pans over to me, and I would simulate cooking like I would see on Iron Chef or, you know, any of these cooking shows that were around. And I always had this vision of the Thanksgiving table and having my hands in everything that you know, came to this table, helping plan or prep, because I would think as, as a meal, like all of these different elements have to come together. They all have to come together at the right time, at the right temperature, they have to have the right seasoning. And man, something about that just, you know, just really jazzed me up. So when uh, my wife Allison and I got married uh, almost six years ago, we, uh, we were like, we're going to host Thanksgiving. So we bought all the dishes and we did all the things. And uh, if you've ever hosted Thanksgiving for the first time, you probably understand this. It was not great. <laughs> like, it was not. Things were coming out early. Things were coming out late. People were huddled in our kitchen. Um, and I was, I was visibly upset. So over the years, you know, we would hone these skills. And throughout the year, what I would find myself doing is envisioning, you know, mashed potatoes. And it's like, okay, if we're going to make potatoes, we have to time it out like this. And we would invite friends over. And little did they know that I was practicing um, on them all these different dishes. People say that, that, that you shouldn't do. So 
Um, a couple years ago, we were having Thanksgiving in Las Vegas, where I'm from and a majority of my family is from and, and still reside. And we're in my grandmother's house. My grandmother's house has a very small kitchen. She didn't get the new age kitchen. She has a very small kitchen, four burners, one oven. And uh, my mother, God bless her, um, has a spirit of hospitality. So she'll invite everybody to, to the table, um, which is a great thing. It's a very beautiful thing to open up your table. It's not a great thing if you're a planner like my, my wife is, and she's like, okay, mom, how, how many people should we plan for? It's like, ah, it could be 10, could be 15, you know, let's just plan for 40, right? So like that creates a sense of anxiety in her, but to me, I'm like, this is it. This is the time. The lights are on. Uh, people are going to come here. Um, and we had been visioning this for, for so long. So throughout the day, we prepped and we prepared and we tempt and we seasoned and we tasted. Um, and it all came together on time, 6 o'clock, dinner was ready. Everything was hot, everything was right, everything was beautiful, and people were amazed. And me, who, who had been, again, dreaming of this moment, practicing and preparing for this moment, I said, why, why are you amazed? Like, this is what happens when, you know, you, you set yourself up in this way, when you have your expectations set so that this is the outcome. Why would you be amazed at this? And this story, um, you know, really helps us transition into Acts 3, where Peter asks his, his fellow Israelites the same question. Why are you amazed? Peter was addressing them. Who, who had just witnessed a man who had been afflicted for 40 years, who was lame um, and unable to walk miraculously. This man is miraculously healed by the Holy Spirit. What we realize is that the Holy Spirit has not only physically healed this man, the Holy Spirit has redeemed and restored this man as well. For the crowds that were around who did not realize that they were in need of redemption and healing, the Holy Spirit the words and the acts of Peter, they themselves received redemption and healing. So I invite you to, to open up your Bibles to Acts 3 with me. We're going to read all of chapter 3, so just, just settle in. Um, we're going to read the words of Luke here. Luke writes, Now Peter and John were going up to the temple for the time of prayer at three in the afternoon. A man who was lame from birth was being carried there. He was placed each day at the temple gate called Beautiful so that he could beg from those entering the temple. When he saw Peter and John about to enter the temple, he asked for money. Peter, along with John, looked straight at him and said, look at us. So he turned to them, expecting to get something from them. And Peter said, I do not have silver or gold, but what I do have I give you in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Get up and walk. Then taking him by the right hand, he raised him up, and at once his feet and ankles became strong. So he jumped up and started to walk, and he entered the temple with them, walking, leaping, and praising God. All the people saw, uh, saw him walking and praising God, and they recognized that he was the one who used to sit and beg at the beautiful gate of the temple. So they were filled with awe and astonishment at what had happened to him. While he was holding on to Peter and John, all the people, utterly astonished, ran toward them in what is called Solomon's Colonnade. When Peter saw this, he addressed the people, fellow Israelites, why are you amazed at this? 
Why do you stare at us as though we had made him walk by our own power or godliness? The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our ancestors, has glorified his servant Jesus, whom you handed over and denied before Pilate, though he was decided to release him. You denied the holy and righteous one and asked to have a murderer released to you. You killed the source of life, whom God raised from the dead. We are witnesses of this. By faith in his name, his name made this man strong, whom you see and know. So the faith that comes through Jesus has given him this perfect health in front of all of you. And now, brothers and sisters, I know that you acted in ignorance, just as your leaders also did. In this way, God fulfilled what he had predicted through all the prophets that his Messiah would suffer. Therefore, repent, turn back, so that your sins may be wiped out. The seasons of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send Jesus, who had been appointed for you as the Messiah. Heaven must receive him until the time of the restoration of all things, which God spoke about through his holy prophets from the beginning. Moses said, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your brothers and sisters. You must listen to everything he tells you, and everyone who does not listen to that prophet will be completely cut off from the people. In addition, all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and those after him have also foretold these days. You are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your ancestors, saying to Abraham, and all the families of the earth will be blessed through your offspring. God raised up his servant and sent him first to bless you by turning each of you from your evil ways. This is the reading of the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So I want us to consider three questions as we come to this text this morning. The first is, what is the Holy Spirit through Peter and John doing for this lame man? The second is, what is the Holy Spirit through Peter and John doing for the Jews that witnessed this miracle? And the third is, what is the Holy Spirit through these people doing for us who are recalling this moment? The first lame man, he was positioned at the temple gate called Beautiful. And the Strong's Dictionary for this Greek word translates to belonging to the right hour or season, timely i.e. By, by implication, flourishing, beautiful, like this is the right place to be and how beautiful it is that we're in the right time, the right season. So I thought it was super intentional that Luke referenced this man's specific location because he was always at the right place waiting for the right hour or season to receive what he needed. But his deeper needs continued to go unmet. After so many years, I can imagine the man resigning himself to his current state in life, receiving from those that have as one who does not have and has no hope to have. I thought about the impact of this repetitive cycle would have on me and how it becomes easier and easier to resign myself to a certain state or a status because of what is explicitly or implicitly being affirmed by those around me. We know that Affirmation can build people up. It can build me up. You can hear words explicitly that say that you are loved and you have value and you have dignity. What we see is that this man is not experiencing that level of affirmation. And in our cultural moment, I would argue that there are more explicit and implicit affirmation that seeks to tear down. Words like you are worthless. You have nothing to offer. You are less than. 
While the cycle plays for some of us, we can experience people around us still being nice, being charitable. This is same. This same thing is true for this man. I mean, they're sacrificing time and energy to go get him and bring him to this gate and then take him back home day and day, month after month, year after year. How could he not be grateful for this? Right? After so much of this, I think the question that becomes central to this man is if I'm where I'm supposed to be and I'm getting what I need, how do I know if there's more for me? How can I expect that there is a life beyond this where I'm reminded or I'm not reminded of those things that I lack? Who is coming to tell me that there's a different way for me to live, that there's a new life? So this man turns to the apostles expecting to receive the same thing from them as he receives from everyone else, his monetary needs being met, an affirmation that this, as a beggar in this position, is his state within this society. It's worth noting that the, the text says that he saw Peter and John. Luke, Luke doesn't say whether he recognized them as Jesus' disciples, but he did see them. All right, before the disciples have a chance to engage him, speak to him, help him, he sees them. Willie Jennings, in his commentary on Acts, writes of this moment, disciples are watched, especially by those in need. Disciples must be seen, especially by those in need. It means is that people need to see us before we see them. And what, if we must be seen, we must be present for those in need. The call of Jesus' disciples is not just to huddle in this place on Sunday and, and to ignore the needs of our communities, our families, and workplaces. In the same way that Jesus engaged with those in need, so should we. We know that this man's tangible need was being, uh, was being met through the money uh, to sustain his life. Jennings calls this anticipation of receiving money as symbols that indicate the ever-present imbalance between the haves and the have-nots. The study Bible uh, notes here that it was the kindness of strangers and loved ones that kept men like him alive because there was no system or structure for government aid uh, to provide for him. This man was begging so that he could make it to another day. His tangible needs, due to his affliction and his lack of resources, were presented each and every day, and to some extent met each and every day. However, his spiritual needs remained unmet. Spiritual need was to be restored to a place of dignity, his identity, this man's identity as one made in the image of God had been ransacked due to the ongoing cycle of brokenness, physically, emotionally, spiritually. We see him not looking at the disciples when they do draw near to him, and this communicates a, a level of shame. He was conditioned to just hold his hands out as a beggar. He could see them, but he did not want to be seen by them. His physical and spiritual needs in this next moment, when he's healed, are being met by the supernatural power of the Holy Spirit. This miracle is an explicit reminder to this man that God cares about all of who he is. There could have been an encouraging word. There could have been a prayer offered to him. But God decides to supernaturally heal this man 
And Luke specifically mentions that his feet and his ankles are strong, were made strong. We know Luke was a physician, so uh, the intentionality of him pointing out in this specific way that, that this man was broken and afflicted, this is what God came to heal through the Holy Spirit. It, it speaks to the intentionality of the Holy Spirit that our wounds, our breaks are specific and in need of a specific attention. This moment echoes that God has not forgotten that. There's a song called He Understands by by Chandler Moore, which in it we're reminded that I have found a friend in the high priest who is not out of touch with reality. So after this man is healed, this man knows exactly what to do when he is healed, and he knows exactly where to go. Now, Now, this is important because he is praising God for his deliverance. He heard that his healing came through the name of Jesus, but that the disciples didn't spend time breaking down the history of who Jesus was and what he did. So it's, it's safe to assume that he was aware of the power of Jesus and the person of Jesus, but he hadn't experienced Jesus. He hadn't encountered a Jesus that was greater than his 40-year affliction. P- plenty of people were walking by every day, probably too aware of Jesus, Yet they themselves had not given this man Jesus. When his healing comes, he enters fellowship with his brothers and sisters to worship and praise God. So what do we see the Holy Spirit doing through Peter and John for this lame man? We, we see the Holy Spirit healing his physical and spiritual needs. It's reestablishing a faith in God for him. It's restoring him to a place of dignity, breaking the bond of dehumanization, using him as a witness to Peter, John, and the crowd that the mission and work of Jesus continues even through Jesus' ascension and that what Jesus promised is true and had come to pass. Jesus said, greater works they will do in my name in John 14 and 12. So now we turn our attention to the crowds. In verse 10, uh, Luke writes, and they recognized that he was the one, the lame man, was the one who used to sit and beg at the beautiful gate of the temple. Now these people were aware of his affliction, but there was nothing holistic that they could do to help him. What they did for this man that we were aware of is that they, they carried him to and from this place every day. They met his tangible needs through the giving of uh, money. But what they didn't do that we are aware of, that people didn't bring him into the temple to praise and worship God. People didn't encourage him as he dealt with his affliction. People didn't sit with him, pray with him, or remind him of the power of God. And as I reflected on this and prepped for this, the the question that, that came to mind instantly was, what were the people going in to do in the temple that was limited in scope to what this man needed? Right, people were going in to pray. The question is like, pray for what? It reveals, this moment reveals a people who had lost faith in the power and the work of God. Remember, these are Jews. They, they know the miracles of God in the Old Testament. They read, recite, and memorize the Psalms, and maybe even recalled the miracles of Jesus. Yet they were blind to the transformative power of the one to whom they prayed. Paul in 2 Timothy 3 calls out a people who hold a form of godliness, which supposes the knowledge, reverence, affection, dependence, submission, gratitude, and obedience to God, but denies its power. 
This power that changes mentalities, that changes hearts, that changes desires and movements throughout a community, how we deal with people, how we speak to people, how we lay down our lives, inconveniencing ourselves for people. This power was either forgotten or lost. And picture us bringing somebody to the doors of Soma for years, dropping them off and then walking past them to conduct Sunday morning and then picking them up on the way out to drop them off again before we go watch football. And essentially, that's what's happened to this man time and time again. 40 years, 40 years, man. We lived through 2020, which felt like five years, like 40 years. Um, and whether this was later in his life that this was happening or if this was for his whole life, that is an incredible amount of time to carry someone to the gates of healing but never bringing them through to be healed. It sounds crazy, but this is what I perceive is happening here. I mean, if we look around, if we honestly look around and ask to see with the eyes that that God uh, sees our communities and our neighbors and our families, the spaces where we move and live, I do not believe we'd be hard-pressed to recognize that there are people that need to be brought into the place of healing. What is all our training and study and formation for if we're unable to recognize that? The second half of verse 10, Luke writes, so they were filled with awe and astonishment at what happened to him. And reflecting on this moment, I was like, this is pretty cool, right? Like, this, this is a moment where we, we realize, one, that they realize and see this man being healed but at the same time, we see that uh, they, they stopped expecting this man to be healed. I believe that the crowd stopped believing that God had the power that he once did, or even more specifically, that the power of God didn't extend to their needs and afflictions and wounds. And I can understand that, right? Like, in a, in a second, Peter is going to tell them that they is going to remind them of their complicity in killing Jesus, even though Jesus rose from the grave, I can imagine realizing uh, Jesus was really the Son of God, um, and these people coming to grips with that, and then having to go in and pray, and feeling a little bit awkward about praying to God um, after they had killed his son. Part of their issue for disbelief was caused by that, but we also must remember that part of their disbelief, or, or, better, law, or better part of their loss of faith, is attributed to the environment that they were in. And so the Roman Empire's whole agenda, this pervasive culture, uh, their whole agenda was to erase the culture of the Jewish people and replace it with the Roman culture. People were confronted with this at, at every turn, and there was a strong temptation for them to assimilate and renounce their own culture. It's not solely that they didn't try to remain faithful through, through the midst of this, we see them going to the temple to pray at the regular time of prayer. It was just that it was more and more difficult to remain faithful in the midst of this. And I think about, and as I think about their dealings in this way, the glass starts to turn from how come they didn't do more for this man to, man, maybe this is as much as they could have done given the, the strains culturally, relationally, emotionally that they themselves as individuals had, this could have been all that they could have done, which is pick this man up, carry him to a gate, pray, pick him up, carry him home. 
I begin to empathize and sympathize with the people who have been so broken and weighed down by the systematic injustices that they have no control over, that their faith is lost, and they have nothing to activate by way of hope. So when this miracle is performed, the Holy Spirit is breaking through the work of the Roman Empire and reestablishing a faith in the power of God in these people. Again, the cycle of carrying a lame man to and from the gate did not only explicitly and implicitly communicate something to this lame man, it also did something for the people who were carrying him. Here is a personal reminder of the not rightness of the world that they had encountered for years, where they themselves were at a place called beautiful, where beautiful things should have happened, but they didn't experience that. Now, on the other side, as I alluded to before, they killed Jesus. I don't think that there was a roster of people at the crucifixion. I don't think that they took a formal vote of who's for or who's against killing Jesus. But Peter reminds them of their complicity in the narrative of Jesus' death uh, in verse 14 and 15. Luke says you, Luke, Luke speaking about Peter says, you denied the holy and righteous one and asked to have a murderer released to you. You killed the source of life whom God raised from the dead. We are witnesses of this. The charges were killing the source of life, asking for a murderer to be released over the innocent Jesus and denying Jesus's freedom. The sins of the people must be dealt with, and it's not dealt with by sweeping it under the rug or saying it was this person or or that person. Peter had to be honest about their sin. There's a call for repentance for this corporate sin, this sin of ignorance. And the crowd themselves had to be honest about their sin. And this acknowledgement is what led to repentance, which Peter calls them to in verse 19. Peter reminds them of the larger plan that God has for their lives and for the life of Jesus. This is not a surprise to God that Jesus was killed in this way and then he uh, uh, rose again. And Peter reminds them that all the prophets foretold of these days, God not being surprised by this is why they can come openly to him in repentance. It's a similar situation that Peter found himself in with Jesus. We read in Luke 22, 31 through 34, Jesus says, Simon, Simon, look out. Satan has asked to sift you like wheat, but I pray for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. Peter says to Jesus, Lord, I'm ready to go with you both to prison and to death. Jesus says, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow today until you deny three times that you know me. And we know that Peter did deny Jesus. We also know that when Jesus rose from the grave, he restored Peter. Jesus goes to Peter and says, Peter, do you love me? Peter says, yes, Lord, I love you. Jesus says, feed my lambs. Jesus says, Peter, do you love me? Again, Peter says, yes, Lord, I love you. Jesus says, shepherd my sheep. A third time, Jesus says, Peter, do you love me? Peter, angry, frustrated. Yes, Lord, I love you. Jesus says, feed my sheep. 
So here in Acts, Peter is not using this opportunity to demand retribution from these people for their sin. He, he names their sin, and he, he, he does so not as a disappointed father to a child or an angry friend to another. He does this as an understanding brother to brothers and sisters within the same family so that seasons of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. Refresh faith, refresh prayers, refresh life. Note the inclusive and familiar language that he uses throughout his sermon. Fellow Israelites, our ancestors, brothers and sisters. We see Peter beside them at this moment. And it's important to know Peter's position here, right? He doesn't see these people as people he can control for his own, hand, for his own ends. I mean, if you heal somebody who's been dealing with an affliction for 40 years, I'm pretty sure that there's a strong temptation to a level of complex and power that comes with doing that. Right? Peter resists this temptation and instead uses this opportunity to shepherd these people, to love on these people. Right? This picture here of, of, of eldership and that you're, you're, you hear the struggles, you understand what these people have gone through, and you don't use that as a moment to dehumanize or or put these people down. You enter in, you serve, you lift them up, you encourage, you bless. You remind them of the grace and promises of God. In this moment, the Holy Spirit is reaffirming the covenant that was made for these people. And in doing so, reminding these people through Peter's words that God has not forgotten his promises. God does not respond to these people as we would respond. These people are sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with their ancestors. This remains unchanged regardless of what they do. They can't get this identity off of themselves because they didn't put that identity on themselves. God put that there. And we know what God joins together. Why did God send Jesus? We quote John 3.16 all the time, but I feel we don't quote John 3.17 enough. Jesus says, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Remember, this is Jesus talking. Peter reminds them of this, that God raised up his servant Jesus and sent him first to bless you, to bless us, to bless you. And he does this by turning each of you, each in the crowd, each of us, from our evil ways. So what is the Holy Spirit doing for this crowd? The Holy Spirit is restoring them, the place of the people of God, by the blood of Jesus given freely to them as a gift of grace, requiring their acknowledgement of their sin and their repentance. So as we look at this moment and we reflect on this chapter, what is the Holy Spirit doing for us? And sure, for, for all of us, we, we encountered this, lands differently, and three things that I took note of. The first is that the Holy Spirit's reminding us that God is aware of our specific needs and that he cares about those needs, like that story that we heard from Anna Lee and Will, like their community. God cares specifically about each and every one of them how he entered in specifically for each and every one of them, right? We think about all the things these parents and these kids are going to go through. As a, God cares about each and everything in their lives. 
This is Hebrews 4, this is Matthew 6, this is John 14, this is Psalms, and this is the promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The, the, the abundant life that Jesus has for us is not just us being okay. It's not about us just being okay with the struggles that we, as we parent, the struggles in our relationships, the struggles within our own bodies. If Jesus is who he said he is, and if we're all in agreement of that, then we should be transformed. Now, this doesn't mean that we don't struggle. This doesn't mean that afflictions won't come, but how we engage these struggles and afflictions and moments should be different. I quote this passage from Timothy because in the face of adversity, my parents will quote this. For God has not given us a spirit of fear, but one of power, love, and sound mind, sound judgment. We don't fear because God has not forgotten. Second thing is that there's power in the name of Jesus. James 2 reminds us that at the name of Jesus, demons tremble. We see in the Gospels that, that Jesus is saying nature will cry out in praise and honor and worship recognizing Jesus. Our culture, specifically zoomed in at, at the Soma community, needs to be reminded that there is power in the name of Jesus. We, we can't strategize our way out of these afflictions. We can't schedule our way out. We need to be raised up in the name of Jesus, and we need to pull each other up in the name of Jesus. The third thing is Holy Spirit's restoring faith and hope in Jesus to allow us to enter into the needs of those, remind us, those around us. Reminding us and reminding each other of the power of Jesus is one thing. Restoring faith to act on that knowledge of that power is another thing. A faith that leads to works beyond what is convenient and comfortable. I started coaching uh, recently at Clay and Connor for the, for the Purdue Polytech high school basketball team. And I ask myself, as I reflect on this and I think about the time to come, I ask myself, how do I not bring these young men just to a gate and leave them there? How do I live, coach, relate to them in a way that they know that God has a plan for their lives, a plan that is personal and specific? Remind them that God has not forgotten them. God has not forgotten us. I don't have a faith for them when I encounter their needs, which I'm sure are many. The Holy Spirit restores hope that what is broken and seemingly beyond repair is not too difficult for God. Gabriel to Mary in Luke 1 reminds her that nothing is impossible with God. Jesus reminds his disciples in Matthew 19, with God, all things are possible. Here in this moment, we're reminded that God is for us, and if God be for us, who can be against us? Let's pray. God, we come to you, Lord, and we submit to you, Lord, ourselves, broken, Lord, our, ourselves, our afflictions. Lord, in whatever state that we are in today, Lord, we submit that to you. God, our emotional needs, our spiritual needs, our relational needs are not far off from your knowledge, Lord. You see that you care, and you seek to comfort us by your Spirit and through the work in the hands of your people. So, Lord, I pray for these, your people, Lord, that you would strengthen their hands, Lord, that you would give them restored faith and hope in you, that there's power in your name, there's power in your presence, and that we can be your presence to one another, Lord and bear one another's burdens. 
we can hold each other up. Lord, we can care and comfort as you have cared and comfort for us. Lord, you are a healer. Lord, your healing doesn't stop at just the, the topical things that are wrong with us. Lord, you go deeper surgically. You see those things, and I pray that we be reminded of that. Lord, we love you. We thank you for this time.